Amen. There is a higher throne, and one day we will stand before it when the, li- when the Lamb will become our shepherd king. Thank you, John. Thank you, Booney. It's great to see you, Booney, and hear the violin play again in our sanctuary. It's great to hear that. Praise God. In a fascinating book entitled Marks of the Messenger, author Max Stiles gives an illustration about a student named Kevin. Kevin enrolled at Liberty University as a transfer student from Ivy League Brown University. For one semester, Kevin presented himself as a believer. He attended chapel, he attended prayer meetings, he went to the dorm Bible studies, he even joined the church choir, and he even went on an evangelistic outreach during spring break at Daytona Beach. But unknown to his friends, Kevin, before leaving Ivy League, the Brown Ivy League School, had signed a contract to write a story of conservative evangelicals. Kevin entered Liberty University as an undercover cultural anthropologist, studying a slice of evangelical Christianity. He knew very little about Christianity, enough to fit into the culture, enough to speak the language, enough to know the kind of things Christians do. And when he arrived at Liberty, he was soon embraced, and because he had some of the cultural marks of Christian, the Christian faith, he was soon embraced as one of their own. Um, he attended the right things, he showed interest in uh, the Christian worldview, he learned to use the language, and he soon passed as a Christian. A few weeks into his stay at Liberty, Kevin reflected, at Liberty, no one asks me anymore about my faith, so to blend in, I rarely have to do anything more active than keep up with my Christian signifiers, going to Bible study, praying before meals, uh, being uh, on time to church. This is what passes for ethical conduct in my world. Kevin blended so well um, that at the end of the semester, uh, someone even called him a true man of the Lord. And another leader asked Kevin to be a prayer leader the next semester. All of this, um, Kevin said, and all of this, he, he wrote, I don't know how, but I think I managed to convince most of these guys that I was a strong, faithful evangelical. And of course, all of this came to, a, uh, to, to, to the truth, to the light, when the book deadline came close and Kevin had to disclose himself and to come out and, and confess who he truly was and what was his mission at Liberty University. Now, here's a question. How is it possible that even Kevin was impressed by how easy it was to pretend and to be accepted as a Christian? And even to be asked to take a leadership role in leading a prayer group? How is that possible? Is it possible that we Christians are failing to hold on to the centrality of the gospel for the Christian life? Is it possible that we have replaced the gospel 
with a merely superficial Christian culture. And as long as people fit into that culture, as long as they speak that language, we will gladly consider them insiders. Is it possible that even in our preaching, we're more interested in addressing people's behavior and maintaining a superficial community of acceptance and smiles? Well, this morning, I would like for us to address the topic and look at the theme of the centrality of the gospel in the life of the church and in the life of the Christian. And specifically, my message this morning will be, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, chapter 15? We'll be looking at two passages, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. If you're using the Bible provided in the chair in front of you, this passage is on page number uh, 999. And then we'll turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, from verse 8 to chapter 2, verse 8. For those of you who are used to, uh, to coming to Park Hills, you know that our typical diet of sermons are expositional pre- is expositional preaching in the sense that we go through longer sections of the Bible for a long period of time. We just finished 23 sermons on the Gospel of John. Lord willing, in the fall, we will start a new series on a book of the Old Testament. Uh, but today, we will cover a topical message, a topical sermon on the theme of the gospel. Next week, we will look at the theme of remembering our mission. So today, remember the gospel. Next week, remember our mission. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 5. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Turn on to 2 Timothy chapter 1. This is on in our bulletin, in our, in our Pew Bibles on page 1031. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says to Timothy now, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel. By the power of God who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of His purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was appointed a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced 
that He is able to guard what I have entrusted to Him for that day. What you have heard from me, keep as a pattern of sound teaching, with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord show mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he searched hard for me until he found me. May the Lord grant that he will find mercy from the Lord on that day. You know very well in how many ways he helped me in Ephesus. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard from me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone completes, competes as an athlete, he does not receive the victor's crown unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on, on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. This morning, let's ask the Lord to bless what we have heard, bless what we will hear, so that the Lord might be glorified and His people might be edified in the gospel. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help. Father, we thank You. We thank You for the great news of salvation. Oh, Lord, we pray now that this news will be fresh in our ears. And we pray that your Holy Spirit will enlighten us. It will refresh in the delight of the gospel in our hearts. We pray this for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Friends, there are two great dangers that Christians have faced throughout the history of the church, especially when it comes to the gospel. Two great dangers. The first one is to distort the gospel. This danger was with us ever since from the days of Paul when he wrote to the Christians in Galatia who were in danger of turning away to a different gospel that was actually not a true gospel. And the history of the church shows us that time and again the church was in danger of falling in a trap, has fallen in that trap, and has recovered time and again, by the grace of God. But there is another danger when it comes to the gospel. Not just to distort the gospel, there's another danger. To assume the gospel. To assume the gospel. To think that we know it, and people know it. And we no longer need to make it explicit. In some ways, this is definitely a more subtle danger because we don't see it as big of a deal. But in the long run, it's just as dangerous as distorting the gospel. 
Now, to lose the gospel is a great tragedy. To lose the gospel is a great tragedy. But I love what Philip Jensen says. The generation that assumes the gospel is the generation that is most responsible for the loss of the gospel. The generation that loses the gospel is the generation most responsible. I'm sorry, the generation that assumes the gospel is the generation that is most responsible for the loss of the gospel. Don Carson also says, Evangelicals will not deny the gospel, but they may assume it while talking about everything else. That is tragic. How do we guard ourselves not only against losing the gospel, but against assuming it? Friends, let's look at this passage or these texts that we have read in 1 Corinthians 15 and then 2 Timothy 1 and 2 and see how Paul refers to the gospel time and again. And whether he writes to a church in Corinth or he writes to an individual Christian, he brings up the gospel. So this morning we'll look at remembering the gospel. Three things, if if you're taking notes, three things that will guide our message this morning. First one is don't assume the gospel. Second, be clear about the gospel. And third, remember the gospel. Don't assume the gospel. Notice what Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, how he starts this, this chapter. I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. So, this tells us that Paul already preached this gospel to them. Then he says, which you received. So, the Corinthians responded to it. And then he says, on which you have taken your stand. So, these Corinthians have already embraced this gospel. Great! Praise God! But what's amazing in this verse is that Paul still finds it necessary to say, I want to remind you of the gospel. And if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, um, you remember how many things Paul has written to this church prior to the 15th chapter? He talked to them about a lot of issues. They needed to be talked about a lot of issues, about the wisdom of God, about church divisions, about apostles, about church discipline, about lawsuits, about sexuality, about marriage, about idolatry, about the Lord's Supper, about worship, about spiritual gifts, about church membership, about love. But towards the end, Paul still finds it necessary to say, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. After so many things, after so much teaching, come back to the gospel? Didn't they know it? Haven't they received it? Weren't they already taking their stand in it? Yes, but he still finds it necessary to share the gospel with them. Paul, save yourself some time. Share the gospel with the lost. They really need it. But the church? Look at two reasons why Paul gives the gospel 
why he's not assuming the gospel, but he's sharing this news again for them. First of all, look at verse 2. Verse 2, for the sake of perseverance, why Paul shares the gospel with Christians. Verse 2, by this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. And then he goes on and gives them the gospel. In other words, if these Christians will persevere to the end, they must remember the gospel and hold on to it. They must not simply assume it. Friends, the Bible and the gospel is not simply about knowing Bible stories and Bible lessons. There are Christians who love Sunday school or love Bible studies, and they know so many stories about the Bible. There are Christians who love reading theology books and get deep into the doctrines. And if you ask them about a particular topic, they could give you so many answers on them. But ask them the question, what is the gospel? And they will start stuttering. And they will start fumbling. And they will start looking for words where to start. And they will start struggling with how to connect the dots because they don't know how to put the gospel together in a simple, easy answer to understand. And friends, I have seen that time and again. Christians who know the Bible stories, they know the lessons. They've been in vacation Bible school. They've been in Sunday school classes. They've been in CBS and in community Bible study and, uh, and, and fellowship and other Bible studies. But ask them about the gospel. And they fumble. And they stumble. And they can't put it together. Paul, even though he wrote these Corinthians about many things, now at the end he wants to remind them explicitly of the gospel because if they're going to persevere, it's not because they know many Bible stories. If they're going to persevere, it's because they will continue to remember the gospel. Second reason why Paul reminds them of the gospel is not only for the sake of perseverance. Look at verse 3. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is why Paul gives them again the gospel. There are many things in the Christian life. There are many things in the life of the church that we should put our attention, we should put our money to, we should put our efforts to. There are many things. But there's only one thing of first importance. The gospel. I love what Jerry Bridges says in his book, The Discipline of Grace. The gospel is not only the most important message of all history, it's the only essential message in all of history. Yet, he says, yet we allow thousands of professing Christians to live their entire lives without clearly understanding it and experiencing the joy of living by it. So Paul is reminding the gospel to these Christians because the gospel is critical not just for conversion, but it's critical for perseverance in the faith. And it's critical because the gospel is of first importance. Now, let's look at 2 Timothy. This is what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at how he deals now with one person. 
2 Timothy chapter 1. This letter is known to be probably the last letter that Paul wrote. It's the second letter that we have from him written to Timothy, who was a pastor. In the first two chapters, Paul alludes to the gospel four times. Look with me. If you have your Bibles open, look with me um, how he does it. In chapter, in chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says, So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. And in verse 9, Paul explains the gospel. Who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And then listen again to how Paul describes what Jesus has done on the cross in verse 10. Paul says, But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Did you catch how Paul is not only using the word gospel, but he actually writes it out for him. He defines it. He unpacks it. What do you mean by that? And then look again in chapter 2, verse 8. After Paul gives this advice to Timothy, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Paul encourages this pastor to remember the gospel. And he writes it out for him, spells it out. Now, friends, why share the gospel with a pastor? Doesn't he know it? Isn't he supposed to preach it? Why share the gospel? Not just use the word gospel, share it, unpack it with a pastor. Oh, friends, Paul, I think, knew it well enough that even pastors need to hear the gospel again and again. And long-time Christians need to hear the gospel time and again. So we, too, need to hear the gospel. We should not assume it. We should not think that, okay, we... They know it. We, we are the same thing. We got the same mission. How do people assume the gospel? Let's unpack this practically. How do people assume the gospel? Because we're saying don't assume it. But how do people assume it? Let me give you a few scenarios. There are more, many others that we could talk about. There's at least three that I can think of um, where people assume the gospel, how people assume the gospel. First of all, we think of the gospel as simply giving the plan of salvation or the plan for conversion. For some, the gospel is more like the sales talk for a decision for Christ. And we have turned gospel sharing into a hunting game for decisions. Since we assume that the salvation is a decision we made for Christ, and since we have made that decision a long time ago, and since that's a done deal, we don't have to worry about it. So we put the plan of salvation on the shelf or in our attic to collect dust. And the only time we may bring it up is when the pastor makes you feel guilty for not sharing the gospel. 
So we, we bring it out of our closets. And when we bring it out, it's so dusty, it's so rusty, it doesn't come out clear. It's coming confused. We're sort of embarrassed by it. We're not even amazed by it anymore. It's just there. We say it because we know we should say it, because that's what it means to be good Christians. But we're really not excited about the gospel. It's dusty. It's rusty. It's there. But it's way there. Because we assume that the gospel is just the plan of salvation for the conversion of souls. Friends, the gospel is not just the talk to get a salvation decision from people. If that's what we think about the gospel, we are greatly impoverishing ourselves spiritually. So a second way we assume the gospel, because we think the gospel is primarily for non-believers, the second way we assume the gospel is this. We fail to talk the gospel with other Christians. We fail to talk the gospel with other Christians. We assume they know it. Uh, we assume that they've responded to it. Otherwise, they wouldn't call themselves Christians. Um, we assume that they know it because they would have no desire to become a member of a church unless they knew it. Um, we assume that they know it because they wouldn't be interested to participate in Christian activities unless they knew it. So why bring it up? Why? Why examine and see if people really know the gospel or what they mean by the word gospel. Friends, there are some people who are even embarrassed to ask other Christians to say the gospel. There are some who say that we should not even ask our coming, new coming members to see if they know the gospel. And Paul said that the gospel is key not only for our conversion, but for our perseverance in the faith. So we should seek to encourage one another with the words of the gospel. Friends, many Christians fail to share the gospel not only with non-believers. We fail to share the gospel with believers. We don't bring it up. When we counsel with someone, when we hear about someone's struggle, we don't say, well, brother, how is the gospel help? Can, how can the gospel can help us in this situation? We don't think about the sacrifice of Christ in in our daily lives, in how we connect our challenges, our issues, our circumstances to the cross. We don't bring up the gospel in our conversations with fellow Christians. We might have great socials, but the gospel is just assumed. Friends, we cannot have Christian fellowship outside of this gospel. I don't know how to put it more more, more easily and plainly to you, but if the gospel is not the measure stick of our fellowship, we're just a social club. If our, I'm not talking just getting together. I'm talking our fellowship, our unity in the faith, our unity as a body of Christ, as members of this congregation. If our measure stick of this fellowship, of this Christian fellowship, is not the gospel, we're just a social club. Friends, we should not be afraid to ask people about the gospel in our church, members of our congregation. Now, here's what happens when we assume the gospel in our church as members. 
when a church assumes a gospel, it's in danger of placing members in leadership positions based on talent, skill, or influence, but not based on commitment to the gospel. Remember Kevin at Liberty? People were happy to ask him to serve in a leadership role, even though it was not clear that he knew the gospel. And nobody bothered to say, Kevin, let's sit down. Tell me how is the gospel working in your life? How did you come to know the Lord? How has been that working in your life? What is the gospel producing in you right now? We're going to ask you to serve in this leadership role, but tell me more about the gospel in your life. Nobody bothered because they assumed that his outward behavior, which was great as a Christian culture environment, that that alone meant that he knew it. Oh, friends, I pray that we would not be afraid or embarrassed to ask fellow members of this congregation, how's the gospel working in your life? Tell me more about what you've learned about the gospel recently. Oh, friends, I pray that when we meet new Christians and we get to know them for the first time, we would not be embarrassed to ask, how did you come to understand the gospel? What do you mean by the gospel? We shouldn't be afraid of that. Friends, we're not only afraid and embarrassed to ask non-believers about the gospel, we somehow manage to work around it even with believers. That is no excuse. No excuse. So this idea of the gospel should start coming, be a part of our vocabulary, and we should figure out questions we ask of one another. A third way, so the first way is we think the gospel is just a plan for salvation and for conversion. A second thing is that we just don't we fail to talk the gospel with other Christians. A third way we assume the gospel is by focusing only on the results of the gospel. We only focus on the results of the gospel. This is probably the most dangerous. We confuse the gospel with the fruits of the gospel. Now, Paul is very clear that when gospel is received and embraced, it will produce a change in us. There's no question about that. But yet, we forget that this call of the gospel was given not because of what we have done, but because of His purpose and grace. So it's easy for us to focus on rules or behavioral change without going back to the gospel, without going back to the roots of the gospel. And we, call what, we, we become what I call holy pragmatists. Holy pragmatists, or pragmatics in holiness. And the gospel of grace at the center of our lives becomes replaced by the performance of God's rules. As long as someone just conforms to the pattern, he must be on the right track. There are two big problems with this trap of assuming the gospel while just focusing on performance or, or following the rules. There are two big traps. Um, first of all, it produces in us a, an attitude of self-righteousness. Instead of pointing us back to the cross and to our need of God's grace, we start really focusing on our performance, on our obedience. Oh, if we could just do this better. We slowly develop the impression that God should save us because of how well we have been living, and we forget our ongoing need for His unmerited grace. And we start thinking that we deserve God's grace because we're living so obediently. And then when something happens in our lives, we're amazed and surprised 
how could God do this to me? That's an attitude of entitlement of a self-righteous heart. Because we have replaced the gospel from the center of our lives and now we're focusing on our performance of God's laws. There's a second trap of that, um, is that we actually not only um, focus on, on the laws of God versus the gospel, but we also lose sight of our sinfulness even while we're saved. We begin to take pride in our obedience rather than remind ourselves of our ongoing corrupt nature. We also reduce our sinfulness to the level of certain behavior, outward behavior, and and thus lose sight of the depthness of our sinfulness. And it typically goes this way. If I could just cover and get over this habit, I would feel so much more holy. And we don't realize that even if God granted you the, that, the victory over that habit, you still remain a wretched sinner fighting that sinful nature because the sinful nature in us is way deeper than our outward behavior. And that should lead us back to the cross. So the reason why the gospel is so critical to keep it at the center, is that even when we perform God's laws, even when we seek to obey God, we realize we go back to His unmerited grace and to our wretched sinful nature. Never boast. Never have a confidence. Oh, look at me. I've been a Baptist for 50 years. There are people who struggle with the idea of taking a membership class, who want to become members of this church. They struggle with the idea of taking a membership class because they've been Baptists for 50 years. And I want to say, so what? We're still sinners. We can still remind ourselves of the basics. But we're proud. We take pride in what we've accomplished. So we should be careful, friends, of not confusing the gospel of God's unmerited grace with the results of what the gospel produces. So we looked so far at three scenarios of how we easily assume the gospel. We think it's only for conversion, we fail to share it with other Christians, and we confuse the gospel with the results of the gospel. But I want to take us to a second point. Let's be clear about the gospel. We're committed not to assume it. But let's be clear. What is it? We've talked about what not to do. But what is the gospel? Friends, the gospel is not just a story about the life of Jesus. I know the first four books of the New Testament are called the gospel of. But the gospel is not just a story about the life of Jesus. The gospel is not just the good news that God loves you. Although that's true. The gospel is not just the news that God has a wonderful purpose for your life. The gospel is a great news of salvation. That God, the creator and owner of the universe, who is holy and perfect, found a way to save guilty sinners by giving His only begotten Son to die on the cross to pay the penalty we deserve for our sins so that we might be rescued and reunited with Him if we believe in Christ and return away from our rebellion. That's the gospel. One sentence. Now, some of you say, say that again. Let me write it down so I can, I can put it. There are four elements in that sentence that I included. And, I, you know, I could give you the language, but it's not just the language. 
I'm going to give you the four theological truths that need to be present in a gospel message. Something about God. That God is our creator and owner of the universe. And He's a holy and perfect God. And He cannot stand an ounce of imperfection in His presence. But the second reality is that we, mankind, even though created in the image of God, we rebelled against God, and because we rebelled and broke His laws, we have become enemies of God, deserving His wrath and punishment. And God would be totally just and perfect if He, if he poured out all that wrath on us. But God still loved us, and He loved us so much that He found a way to justify sinners, guilty sinners, by sending His only Son, Jesus, to pay the penalty on the cross for us, for our sins, in our place, so that by His wounds we might be healed. So that when we put our trust in Christ and what He accomplished on the cross, when we look at Him and turn away from our rebellion, for our way of reaching God, when we look to Him, that's when God does a miraculous work in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and He gives us a new birth, starting a new nature in us. He starts putting in us a delight for God, a delight and love for God's people, a delight for the kingdom of God, so that now we look at our lives no longer through the interests of our own self-centered beings, but now we look through our lives for the purpose of the gospel and the glory of God and His kingdom. Four things you want to include in every gospel presentation. Something about God, who He is. Something about man, rebellious and deserving God's wrath. Something about Christ as being the substitute, dying in our place to satisfy the wrath of God. And something about our need to respond to Him in faith and repentance. Oh, friend, I wonder if you're this morning, if you're here, perhaps you're not a Christian. Or perhaps you thought you are a Christian like Kevin, whether intentionally or not, you, you, you comply to the cultural language of Christian communities. But when you heard this message as gospel, you have never understood it in this way or you have never actually embraced it or responded to it. I wonder if you're here this morning and you have heard this news and this news is for you. God wants to give you this salvation right now, today if you actually believe this message about God, man, Christ, and response, if you've never responded to the grace of God, you can pray in your own mind, your own heart, right now as I speak. Ask God. Acknowledge that God is indeed the Creator, the King, the Holy God. Acknowledge that you are a sinner deserving God's wrath. Acknowledge that Christ is the one who paid the price and that you turn to Him in faith and repentance. If that's your desire right now, God promises through the Holy Spirit to give you a new birth. I'd love to talk to you at the end of the service, if that's your desire. Or perhaps you have questions more about this and you haven't really embraced this thing. I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But don't let this news pass you by. That's the gospel. Friends, so we looked at don't assume the gospel. Be clear about the gospel, what the gospel is. Be able to say it in 30 seconds, in 60 seconds and articulately clearly, and include the, all the necessary elements. But then finally, remember the gospel. How do we do this in the life of the church? How do we remember the gospel in the life of the congregation? Not only not how not to do it, but how to do it. Five ways we seek to do this at Parkinson's Baptist Church. Five ways. First, we proclaim it regularly in our public gatherings. We do not want to shun away 
from preaching the gospel. My prayer is that in every sermon that's preached here, either by me or by a guest speaker or by anybody else, the gospel will be explicitly stated. And I'm not talking about just giving the gospel as call people to salvation. I'm talking, say the gospel for believers as well. Say the gospel for the sake of sanctification. Say the gospel for the sake of perseverance. We don't want to, we want to guard against a tendency to preach only moral improvement. If you could just be a better person, if you could just be a better Christian, or we want to guard against the tendency of a superficial decision that if you just do this, you will be saved. As if, you know, whatever it is, saying a prayer or, or walking down the aisle or whatever it is, that's it. That's it. No, the gospel really creates a change that God ha- does in us. And we want to trust in that work of God. We, we want to focus on, on the gospel in our singing. We deliberately choose songs that are rich in theology, that are rich in the truths of the word of God, of the gospel. Um, we do this in the act of public praying. I'm not sure if you noticed, but we either have a prayer of confession, or if we don't, I take deliberate time in our, in our pastoral prayer to speak about our confession of sins and to acknowledge our sin before God. And to some, that might sound negativistic. Why do we focus so much on our sin? and our? Because we are sinners. And we can't assume that we just know that. We need to be reminded of that every time. And that should drive us to the grace of God. So we want to do that in our prayers. We want to do that regularly. And don't, be, don't shun away from confessing our sins and acknowledging that it's only by grace that we have been giving access to God to Christ's work on our behalf. I want to encourage you, friends, when you come to our services, look for the gospel. Just look for it. When you hear it in the sermons, don't tune out, assuming, oh, now this is time to speak to non-believers. I can text. I can uh, check my phone. I can think about what I need to do after service. When I give the gospel... It's for you too, dear believer. Seek to rejoice in it. Or, or, or when we sing the songs, look for the words that, that show the big concepts of the gospel in our singing. Are they there? Or are, is our singing just focused on human uh, emotionalism, human-centered emotionalism? No, we want to have emotions and affections that are centered on God, that are coming from God. And then do this as we, as we pray. Look for, for the gospel in prayers. Second way we can do this at Park Hills is we study the gospel. We encourage people to read books and to meet one-on-one in small groups to discuss the gospel. There's a few books I would recommend for you to pick up and start reading if you'd like to study the gospel more. Or one of them would be um, The Marks of the Messenger by uh, Max Stiles. We're actually reading this book with the deacons one chapter at a time in every deacons meeting we're reading so that we keep ourselves fresh in the focus on the gospel. Um, other books for, are, for instance, C.J. Mahaney, The Cross-Centered Life, or uh, Matt Chandler, The Explicit Gospel, or Greg Gilbert, the, uh, the book called What is the Gospel, or pick up John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. There's a few books I would recommend to you highly, and if you don't have money to buy them, come to me and we'll find a way to get you a book so you can study the gospel and read that with another friend. Get together, read that book, a book like that, with somebody else. Third way we, uh, we want to make the gospel a regular part of, of the life of our kills, we actually expect you to know it. Those of you who are thinking about joining our church, um, one of the things that we ask you in a personal 
interview time is that I would I'd just come out and say, okay, so um, John, just tell me the gospel. If I was a non-Christian, and I'm ready to hear it. There's no objections. I'm ready to hear it. What is the gospel? We just expect you to know it. And if you're, if you're having a hard time with it, we say, let's work through some stuff together, and then we'll revisit the issue of church membership because we want to make sure you get the gospel. The measure stick of our fellowship in this church is the gospel. A fourth way is that we seek to apply it. We seek to apply the gospel to our lives. We seek to live lives worthy of the gospel. We seek to live lives that commend the gospel. And how do we do that? Every problem, every issue, every challenge we have, whether it's corporately or individually, we want to think back about the cross, about the gospel. Think of when Paul wrote to the church in, Ephesus, in Corinth about the visions. He addressed the first major problem. You know what he asked them? He didn't say, oh, guys, you just need to love one another better. Just pull your bootstraps up and just live with more love. You know what he asked them? Was Paul crucified for you? What does that question tell you? He's going back to the cross for addressing divisions in the church. When he talks about sexuality, people were sleeping with each other. You know what he says? He tells them, can Christ be joined to a sinner? He goes back to the gospel and how God saved us and put in us the Holy Spirit so that we are temples of the Holy Spirit so that when God has revived us, we can no longer do things that are sinful, not because we want to earn God's salvation. It's because we are so grateful for what God has done. He has freed us from sin. So whether he's addressing divisions, sexuality, a whole bunch of other things, God, Paul is going back to the gospel. That's what we do at Park Hills. That's what we do in our counseling. We want to help people to think carefully about the gospel in applying it in everyday life. Lastly, we display the gospel. The last way we do this at Park Hills is we display the gospel in baptism and the Lord's Supper. These sacraments are not meaningless rituals or some mystical experience. Far from it, they are visible displays of this gospel. They remind us of the death of Christ on our behalf, and they remind us of what the grace of God does in us, namely to unite us with Christ. Friends, the gospel is not just the good news out there. It's only good news if you get it, if you receive it, if you embrace it. And when you receive it, it unites you with God. That's why when we get in the waters of baptism, like tonight, Rico and Vanessa, there's an immersion. You are going down with Christ in his death. You are joining Christ in his death. That's what baptism means. When we are taking the Lord's Supper, we eat that bread. We take it in to remind us of our union with Christ. The gospel is displayed through these elements, through these sacraments. So, friends, at Park Hills, we want to be focused on, on these ideas of the gospel, remembering the gospel, know the gospel, study the gospel, preach the gospel, sing the gospel, pray the gospel, display the gospel, live the gospel. And, friends, we don't do this just individually. As a matter of fact, we cannot do it individually only. This is a corporate experience. That's why the church is the community that displays the gospel the best in ways that we could never do as individual Christians. Friends, I pray, I pray that if you feel convicted that perhaps you are here this morning, you are a Christian, you know the gospel, you received it, but really the Spirit of God may have convicted you that you have assumed the gospel until now. I pray that the Holy Spirit will rekindle in you a passion for the gospel. And I'm not just talking a passion to share the gospel, although that's included. 
I'm talking being passionate about and think about the gospel in the way that you think about it, in the way that you dwell on it, in the way that you rejoice in it, in the way that it colors your life. But I want to leave you with one last thought. This kindling, this rejoicing, this refocusing on the gospel, bringing the gospel back to the center of our lives as Christians and of our lives as a church cannot be done apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember when you received the gospel? It was the Holy Spirit who enlightened your eyes to see it. It was the Holy Spirit who convicted you of sin, who convicted you of, of the grace of God. It was the Holy Spirit who, who led you to respond by faith and repentance. In the same way, if we want to rekindle our passion for the gospel or to reclaim the center of the gospel for our lives together, we have to rely on the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this by ourselves. I love what Augustine says, by the inspiration of the sweetness of grace, through the Holy Spirit, He will make what He commands more delightful than the delight of what He forbids. The gospel of God is applied to our lives, to our hearts, and becomes delightful to us through the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we should ask Him to do this for us, that He will enable us to remember the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we this morning are gathered here asking you to protect us from the danger of assuming the gospel. And we pray by the power of your Holy Spirit to rekindle in our hearts a passion, a joy for the gospel. So that no matter what else happens in our lives, no matter what's taken away from our lives, the gospel would be sufficient. Not only for our conversion, but for our perseverance. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.